0: Well, I was, uh, we're going to be continuing this morning in our study through the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 13. And over the course of two previous sermon series, we have worked our way through big chunks of John's Gospel, including our study of the eight miraculous signs of the book of John, and also in our Christ imitator series. You might remember there's these statements that Jesus makes where he says, this is what I do, you should do the same. Two of those are right here in John 13, where he says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And after washing the disciples' feet, he says very pointedly, I have set an example for you in this. And I was reflecting on that this week as I was studying, because my sense is is that as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John, skipping over those parts where we had studied the signs and those statements that Jesus made, The Gospel of John is pretty dark. (laughs) If you cut out those pieces and we just focus on the rest of it. Because what's left, and I was just feeling like, because this week we're going to be talking about who? Judas. How dark, how bleak. And last week we talked about how God had hardened the hearts of the people so that they could not believe. How dark, how bleak. And the week before that, we talked about the triumphal entry, which is jubilant and victorious, except all those people would eventually say, crucify him. How dark, how bleak. And so it feels like as we've moved through the Gospel of John in this way, it just feels like a very dark book, almost bereft of positive response to Jesus And uh, so I was thinking about that, but then I was also thinking how only in the midst of great darkness does the light of Jesus shine so brightly. Isn't that true? And how really what we're seeing Jesus kind of slog through, uh, the rejection, the disbelief, the the criticism, the contentiousness, How all of that is a picture, I think, of this fallen world and these days that we're living in before Jesus comes back. It's not like there's no hope. It's not like there's no positive response, no miraculous. All that is happening, and the Gospel of John contains that also. We're just conveniently kind of stepping over it because we've already talked about it. But I think that the dark things of the Bible are meant to highlight the bright, brilliant light of who Jesus is and the great hope. The sad things are there ultimately to make us glad. And so I want us to keep that in mind this morning as we enter into yet another very dark, difficult passage covering the life of Judas. I'm going to be here in uh, John 13, beginning in verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. This is Jesus speaking. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is how John in his gospel refers to himself, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Uh, Let's pray as we enter into this time as we worship God in the study of his word. Dear Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, guide us into your word. Father, I pray that I would say nothing distracting. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would have full sway in our heart and that what you want to say in this time we would receive gladly in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the great tragedy of Judas is, of course... That although Judas personally witnessed Jesus make men who had been born blind to see, he somehow remained blind to what it all meant. Judas's very eyes beheld the paralytic get up. Guys, he was there. He saw him take his mat and walk out of the room. At Jesus' command, Judas beheld a legion of demons invade a herd of pigs and plunge over a cliff. Their death. Judas was present when water was turned into wine, and at the feeding of the five thousand, along with the other disciples, he personally took bread and fish from Jesus' very hands, and distributed the miraculous meal to the hungry crowds. Then afterwards Jesus he walked around and filled one of the twelve baskets with the leftovers. Judas witnessed Jesus walking on water. He was there when Jesus, at a word, commanded a storm to be still, and it went dead quiet. He would have been there when Lazarus, at another word from Jesus, came forth from the tomb. He heard Jesus confound the leading experts and religious leaders of his day with a superior wisdom that simply could not be argued against. He was not just a witness to the power and authority of Jesus, though, he also experienced some of that power and authority firsthand, flowing through him. In Matthew 10, We are told that the disciples, including Judas, presumably, were given power and authority to cast out demons and heal illnesses, and they were sent out by Jesus two by two to do those things and to proclaim that the kingdom was at hand. So Judas was an evangelist. He was a miracle worker. He was a healer. He was a member of Jesus's inner circle. He was a witness to all his works and teachings. And he was also a thief, a disillusioned man, a traitor, and a counterfeit disciple. Judas and Jesus had been friends for three years. And as one of the twelve, Jesus' inner circle of disciples, they would have been more often together than apart during those years. They traveled the country. They shared meals. They laughed together, talked, and worshiped together. They said good night before settling down. They said good morning when they woke up. The Bible is clear that as they traveled, on those occasions when the crowds rejected Jesus, Judas, along with the other eleven disciples, had remained steadfastly by his side. He had at times basked in the glow of Jesus' popularity. But he had also remained with Jesus when there were death threats and when Jesus offended the sensibilities of his countrymen. When the crowds left and Jesus said, Are you also going to abandon me? Judas, along with the eleven, stayed with him. In John 6. And I think when we put all of this together... This is why it says of Jesus in verse 21 that he was troubled in his spirit when he contemplated Judas's coming betrayal. This is a description of our God feeling heartsick at the suicidal, self-harming, and destructive path that his one-time friend Judas had chosen for himself. Like Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, Judas would tragically trade all the riches of heaven for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus was heartsick at the thought of it. It was this that caused Jesus' spirit to feel so troubled. I believe he was profoundly sad for Judas. Judas' full name was Judas Iscariot. And Iscariot most likely means from Kerioth which would seem to indicate that he or his family hailed originally from the small city of Kerioth, in southern Judah. All the other disciples, interestingly, were from the region of Galilee further north, so he may have been kind of an outsider among the twelve. We are told in John 6.71 that his father's name was Simon Iscariot. And except for these small biographical details... We have no information about Judas's life before becoming one of the 12 whatsoever. He was probably from a small town in southern Judah, and his dad's name was Simon. Beyond that, we don't know what he did for a living. We don't know if he was married. We get very few insights into his personality or his family relationships. However, although we do not know much about Judas, the Bible makes it plain that Jesus understood the man better than he knew himself. On five separate occasions, Jesus made it plain that in his omniscience, he knew exactly who Judas was. He knew what he was doing and what he intended to do. In John six seventy 70-71, for example, Jesus said, Did I not, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Again, referring to Judas earlier in John 13, after washing the disciples' feet, Jesus says in verses 10 through 11, You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Later on in Jesus' high priestly prayer, found in John 17, Jesus, speaking in prayer to the Father, mentions Judas, describing describing him as the son of destruction. While I was with them, he told his Father in heaven, I kept them in your name, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Like Judas... John, the author of this gospel, was also a firsthand eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. And in this scene from The Last Supper, John provides details that only an eye-ear witness could have. After Jesus washed the feet of the twelve and resumes his place back at the table, he drops an unexpected bomb in the room. In verse 21, Jesus states rather bluntly, One of you will betray me. And the disciples didn't know who he was talking about. I imagine there was a moment, maybe a couple minutes, of uncomfortable silence following this statement. And we've all been in groups long enough to know that probably in the silence, following Jesus' statement that one of you will betray me, there were eyes darting around the room. (laughs) People the eyes met and then kind of flitted away awkwardly uncomfortably people were wondering thinking who could it be interestingly mark 14:19 tells us that they asked one by one is it me is it i which demonstrates that even though they may have looked around the room at one another in suspicion they also seemed to know enough about the dark potential of their own hearts to look on themselves with suspicion and distrust also. As was the custom in the ancient Near East, people didn't typically sit on chairs when they gathered around a table for a meal. They lay on their sides, usually with their left elbow propped up on a cushion, and they would eat with their right hand. And according to verse 23, Peter, who was not sitting directly next to Jesus, but was apparently at some distance off. Peter, always the impetuous one, the one who forces the conversation forward, he signals to his buddy John. John, who was sitting directly next to Jesus apparently, and Peter, who was not right next to Jesus, signals to John and signals him to ask He doesn't say the words out loud. I wonder what that would have looked like. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And Peter goes, (laughs) I don't know what he would have done. What would that gesture look like, I wonder. But somehow Peter signals to John, without using words, ask him, who is it? So in verse 25, John leans toward Jesus and asks him, Lord, who is it? Jesus responds to John in a voice that's quiet enough that I think only John could hear him. He says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Then, of course, Jesus dipped the bread and offered it to Judas, who took it and ate it. And I think we can know that this was spoken quietly because it seems most likely that Judas himself was in the dark about the significance of the offered bread. And we just know this because this is human, right? If Jesus had said, whoever I give this to is my betrayer, and then he gives it to Judas, Judas would have said, you got me wrong. He didn't know the significance, I don't think, of what Jesus was offering him. But we also know that it was probably spoken quietly because verses 28 through 29 document the fact that even as Judas left, the other disciples remained in the dark about who the traitor was, supposing that Judas had been sent away on some kind of an errand. They didn't know what Jesus had said to Judas, and they thought maybe he's gone out to get some more food, maybe he's gone out to make a donation to the poor, we don't really know what's going on. So as Judas left and walked out into the night, I think this uh, story in John 13, this account, is telling us that as he walked away, Jesus and John were likely alone in the knowledge of who would betray Jesus at that moment. The reference to night in verse 30, it says he went out and it was night, is more pointed and full of meaning, I think, than John simply telling us what time of day this occurred. Light and darkness has been a major theme throughout John's gospel. From the opening verses, when John wrote of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And of course, we might remember the words from our study in John 9, when after Jesus stirred up the Pharisees to a homicidal rage by telling them that he was the light of the world, but before he worked a sign that would vividly image demonstrate his identity as the light of the world by healing a man who had been born blind between that moment when he says i'm the light of the world and the pharisees want to kill him and before he goes out and heals the man who had been born blind he makes this statement in john 9 4 we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work Jesus and his disciples over the span of three years had completed that work in the daytime. And now as Judas steps away from the Last Supper with clean feet and a stained heart, the night that Jesus had spoken of back on that day settles over the world. Darkness comes into full flower. It is night. And no one, no one but Jesus would be able to do the work that needed to be done from that point on. Although John makes no mention in his gospel account of the famous kiss by which Judas would betray Jesus, the gospels of Mark and Luke tell us that this was the prearranged sign by which Judas identified Jesus to the armed men who had been sent to arrest him. In John 18, we're told that Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. At that moment, as Judas fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 41, 9, which says, even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And as Judas made his way back into Jerusalem 30 pieces richer, but perhaps beginning to feel some buyer's remorse, I wonder if it would have surprised the man to learn that on the next day, both he and Jesus would hang from a tree. In a parallel account, Matthew 27, 2 through 5, we are told, So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied? That is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The same day, Jesus would hang. Now this is pretty dark subject matter, and we might wonder what value and profit is there in spending time studying the life of somebody like Judas. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul told them the value of studying the lives of people like Judas whose stories read more like a sad cautionary tale, and that value is that they help us from falling into the same snare. Reflecting on those stories of moral failure and their consequences in the Old Testament, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I think clearly what Paul is saying about the value of stories like Judas's or like those in the Old Testament of figures whose lives are not an inspiring message or an example to us. They're a cautionary tale. Paul is saying, examine yourself. Uh, Let let the, the scriptures confront you with the ugliness of this waywardness, these bad decisions. And let the Holy Spirit work in concert with God's word to confront us if there is any resemblance in me to Judas or to any of these stories. So my hope is that by by paying close and careful attention to a counterfeit disciple this morning, that it would have the effect of making us all into more authentic followers of Jesus. And by the way, as a quick aside, I think some people look at Judas hurling the money back into the temple as an act of repentance, as though in the end he turned to Jesus. And first of all, when I encounter that thought, I think how wonderfully Christian that is. <laughs> Don't we all love the story of redemption and sinners turning? And I would love it. I would love it if Judas in the end had repented. But I would think that that's very unlikely in light of something else Jesus said about Judas. Elsewhere in Scripture, he said of Judas, it would have been better... For the one who betrays me, if he had never been born. And I think that we know from this testimony of Scripture that whatever pain, whatever sin, whatever happens to us in life, it is all made worthwhile if in the course of our life we come to put our trust in Jesus and enter into the hope of salvation. And so when Jesus says that it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born, that is a sobering statement about how it all ends for Judas. I don't think the scriptures give us much hope to believe that Judas in the end turned in faith and repentance to a faith in saving faith in Jesus. I think his hanging of himself is an expression of suicidal despair, deep regret, I think in this we see a picture of the weeping and gnashing of teeth at the second coming of Christ. There will be profound regret, but that is not exactly the same as repentance, unfortunately, for Judas. But again, my hope is that by studying the sad story of Judas, we would be made glad. By studying this dark stuff, we would see the light and the hope of Jesus. Now, one of the things I think that's really important before we dive into this, uh, the, this section of our study of the life of Judas is that the Bible ultimately is very fuzzy and unclear about exactly what Judas' motives were in betraying Christ. I think there's enough here in the body of the gospel accounts to give us a pretty good idea, but ultimately we can't say with great precision it was because of A, B, C, and D that Judas did what he did. And on the one hand, that's very frustrating, because I would like to know exactly what Judas was thinking. Exactly what did you think would happen? What did you hope to obtain? What was your big plan? But I think the reason why the Bible is a, a, a little silent about Judas and his exact motivations is because I think if we could figure out exactly what made Judas tick, it would make it all the easier for us to wash our hands of that personally and say, well, I'm no Judas. I don't struggle with that particular set of temptations. I would never betray Jesus over 30 pieces of silver in a hope for political gain. And so I think it's a little bit fuzzy about exactly what his motives were because it want, I think Scripture wants us to know that we all have the dark potential in our hearts to betray Jesus for lots of reasons. And Judas is sort of like a, a, a Rorschach test, if you will, where we can kind of see in him all the dark inner longings of the human heart that can bring us to a place where we are willing to sell out Jesus for something else. And that maybe if we could put our finger exactly on what Judas's specific reasons were, it would make it very easy for us to say, well, I'm no Judas. I would never get there. But I do want us to take a look at Judas. Let's try and understand this man. There are more than a few indications in Scripture that it is not only possible, but actually quite common that people imagine themselves to be followers of Jesus when in fact they are not. Take, for example, in Matthew 7, where Jesus says that on the last day there will be many who will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and many mighty works in your name? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think something similar is going on with Judas. Judas had been a follower of a Jesus. But I don't think it can be truly said that he was ever a follower of the Jesus. Because the Jesus he had been following was really a Jesus of his own invention, a product of his fallen hopes and desires which he had projected onto Jesus. And when Jesus confronts Judas with who he he truly was, Judas became disillusioned with him. Now this kind of reminds me of when I was a little kid and my mom took me to a crowded grocery store at Christmas time, and she said, Joshua, stay where I can see you. She was busy going through the store, grabbing stuff off the shelves, and I was following her along. But at one point I stopped to look at something, and I looked up. My mom was wearing a green jacket, and I started following a green jacket. And we got into the produce section of the store, the green jacket turned around, it was not my mom. And I became horrified. (laughs) I think Judas thought he was following Jesus. But when Jesus turned around, that's not who I wanted to follow. That's not who I thought you were. That's not what I was hoping for and longing for. You turned out to be somebody other than who I thought you were, and this isn't what I want. And I just started crying in the middle of the produce section. Judas went and found what he wanted unfortunately. He was like the enthusiastic crowd in John 6 that followed after Jesus because they wanted bread for their stomachs, but they felt no need or desire for the bread of life. When they came to him the next day and they were hungry for more bread and Jesus started talking about how he was the bread of life, they kind of went like, well, but we kind of like the real bread. Do you have any more real bread? All of their supposed following of Jesus was really a following of their own stomachs. In Philippians 3.19, it could have been speaking about that bread-seeking crowd or Judas when it says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And when Jesus revealed his true mission— and who he truly was by talking to them about their deeper need, their soul hunger, they found him off putting, offensive, strange, and they walked away. Judas, similarly, has been following Jesus in the hopes, no doubt, that his place within Jesus' inner circle will improve his standing when Jesus comes into power. When he reveals himself to be the long awaited Messiah, John tells us also that Judas was a thief who used his position as the disciples' treasurer the keeper of the money bag to embezzle money out of that money for his own whatever he wanted I think Judas at one point believed that Jesus truly was the Messiah but like so many others he completely misunderstood the full meaning of of that Judas, I think, was probably a patriot. He wanted to see Israel liberated out from under the boot of Rome. And he hoped, no doubt, to be an important man in Jesus' new government when he eventually came into power. But just like the crowds in John 6, he did not feel the deeper need to be liberated from bondage to sin and death. His hopes surrounding Jesus were essentially earthbound and carnal. He desired to see Israel liberated from Roman oppression, but he was blind to the chains around his own soul. And so as Jesus approached Jerusalem and he began talking to the disciples repeatedly about how he must be handed over and crucified, Judas, and I think Judas alone among the disciples, understood Him to be speaking literally, and he became offended and disillusioned. Matthew 26 begins with Jesus telling his disciples, including Judas, The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And just a dozen verses later, we read, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? The sequence is clear. Jesus starts, Jesus essentially, Judas looks up and realizes, well, I'm following a dead end. This isn't going to bring me what I've been looking for. And here is what we must see. Hebrews 12.2 tells us to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's very, very important that we don't look to a Jesus, but to the Jesus as he really is. The Jesus we see matters. And the question for us as we study the story of Judas is, do we see Jesus clearly? Judas did not, and that was his undoing. How about me? Do I see you clearly, Jesus? Judas' preference for the Jesus he imagined and hoped for was an invention of his fallen desires and ambitions. And this caused him to be offended by the real Jesus when he showed up. Because he was blinded by a hoped-for Jesus, he saw no beauty or excellence or necessity in the real Jesus. And this led him to betray what was infinitely valuable and precious for 30 pieces of silver. And this trading of the infinitely valuable for just a little bit of this earth is always what comes From not seeing Jesus clearly. There are many people who are motivated to follow Jesus because they perceive that there will be some this worldly benefit in doing so. This is very common. And we see this today in things like the prosperity gospel. Tragically, people can be so blinded by their love of the this worldly benefits of Jesus their love of comfort, their love of material abundance, their love of health, their love of more days under the sun, that when Jesus fails to produce those things, when Jesus fails to produce a life of material abundance or deliverance from a disease or security or freedom from hardship, they walk away from the bread of life which would have satisfied them perfectly and eternally. This is the tragedy of Judas. Judas was drunk, I think. I can't say this with great certitude, but I think he was drunk on this intoxicating mix of idolatrous patriotism, personal ambition, greed, and a hunger for power and prominence. Right after the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, we find verse 15, which says this, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. From this verse, I think we can discern that some of Jesus' followers, and I think it's very likely that this was true of Judas also, had cherished hopes that salvation, and at least in Judas' case, also personal advancement and power, would come through the establishment of an earthly kingdom. They saw Jesus as the sort of king who would restore Israel to its former glory and prominence. From Jerusalem, Israel would flex its muscles and project its power over all the earth. Judas, this obscure nobody of a man, had placed a long-shot bet on this Nazarene carpenter And he had become more and more excited as it looked increasingly like Jesus really, truly was the guy. He was there when they came into the city and everybody was crying out, it's the Messiah. And Jesus didn't stop them. In fact, he was encouraging them. And he's getting more and more excited. This is really happening. And then Jesus made it abundantly clear that he intended, as strange as this is, to throw all that away to make a point, to go to the cross. Interestingly enough, do you remember in the temptation of Jesus, when Satan took him up to the top of the temple, and he said, look out over all the kingdoms of the world, I'll give you all of this if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no. Judas essentially wants that. And he said, yes, give it to me. And he's pinned his hopes on obtaining that on Jesus, as perverse as that sounds. That's not what Jesus was all about, at least not in the sense that Judas understood it. But Judas is falling prey, I think, to the same temptation, the same poisonous cup that Satan offered Jesus from the top of the, from the, top of the temple. Judas imagined his ark as a rags-to-riches story. Maybe there was a girl involved. I don't know. We don't know any of that stuff. But all of these things that are common to man, he's looking at this, he's coming into his own, he's going to come into his power, Jesus is the golden ticket, the lottery ticket, that's so actually going to pay out, and then Jesus is going to throw it away? I better get what I can out of this scenario because my plans are not going to come together the way that I had hoped. He wanted a million-dollar payout, but he'll take 30 pieces of silver if that's all Jesus is worth in the end. We see something similar sometimes in our own days, I think. Similar, but not the same. When people want revival in the United States, not primarily so that their unbelieving neighbors and coworkers will be saved from their sins, but so that America can return to her former glory. We recognize this strange mingling of religious fervor and political ambition among Jesus' followers even today. Some habits die hard. Yes, the Jesus we see matters because we will become who we worship. Jesus identified Judas by offering him in sincerity the bread and the wine. And Judas identified Jesus with a false gesture of a kiss. I think there's significance in the the selection on the part of Jesus to identify Judas with the bread and the wine dipped together. What does that remind you of? Reminds me of communion. The broken body, the spilled blood. Jesus was offering Judas insincerity all that his heart longed for and more. And Judas, that rascal, took it as a false act of worship and friendship and ate it. I think this is what it means in the New Testament when Paul warns some of you who are eating, taking communion, while in the midst of egregious patterns of sin, you're eating and drinking destruction onto yourself. We're receiving from Jesus the bread and the cup. And like that rascal Judas, we're just eating it in a way that's totally tone deaf to the fact that we are living in the midst of gross betrayal, without repentance, without a turning. And the Apostle Paul says, that is why some of you are horribly sick and dying. That's serious stuff. And Judas, for his part, when he meets there, the prearranged symbol by which he would identify Jesus was the very false offering of a kiss. And how much that must look like the false worship of a counterfeit disciple. The singing, the words, all the things that come with worship are just noise. It's fake, it's false. Jesus was not betrayed with a slap, he was betrayed with a kiss. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. He drew near and honored him with his lips, but all the while his heart was mastered by other things. Remember how Judas hid behind a thin veneer of spirituality when he chided Mary for anointing Jesus with her costly ointment. He said, why was this ointment not sold and given to the poor? He feigned concern for the poor, but John tells us he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. In 1 Timothy 6, 5 through 10, it says that a false follower of Jesus is someone who imagines that. Godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, all of that sadness and darkness, I think, is offered up in the Bibles ultimately to make us glad, and ultimately for the sake of highlighting the light and the good. And so I want to end this morning with this challenge. Maybe right now you're in a—it's the new year— And maybe you're casting about for uh, a New Year's Bible plan. And so let me just challenge you with this. I think it's so critically important that we see Jesus clearly. And so if right now you're in a place where you are desiring, God, what what should I be reading in your word every day when I meet with you in your word in the Bible? Uh, Take this as a challenge. Read through one of the Gospels. We're studying our way through John, so maybe choose Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And each day before you read a chapter, ask God this simple prayer, God, help me to see Jesus as he is. Help me to see Jesus. You know, as disciples of Jesus, as sincere from the heart imitators of his example, Jesus is the target at which we are aiming our lives. And you can't hit a target that you can't see very clearly. Judas missed fantastically. That bullet went winging off into the bushes, didn't come within a mile of the target. Something was wrong with his sights. And so it's really important for us that we see Jesus clearly. And I think the path towards seeing him clearly, the place where we meet Jesus and get to know him, is in his word. Because after all, he is the word made flesh. So take that as a challenge. I'm going to be doing that personally. I'm going to be reading through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, incidentally, there, I, think there's, I think there's like 31 chapters in Luke, if I'm right. So it's nice and lays out neatly along a month, if you want to pace it out that way. But take that as a challenge. Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Father, even though it is sobering to think about Judas, this counterfeit disciple, And Father, even though we are prone to ask you the same question at the tail end of a verse like this that the disciples asked Jesus in the upper room, is it me? Am I capable of the same kind of betrayal that Judas exhibited? God, you are very quick in your word to bed those kind of concerns down in the promise of grace and forgiveness. God, you do not want us to walk around you in a hand-wringing, unsure kind of way, as though we are not sure of our reception in your presence. And so, Father, we know as a bedrock certainty the promise of Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we know that. We know, Lord, that your promises are true, that you are such a one as never breaks his promises, and we cling with a white-knuckle grip to the promises of the Bible and the gospel. But, Father, your word is also true and also speaks to the fact that we should be sober in taking inventory of our inner world. That the same tendency that Judas had to betray you for this world, for the things of this world, that that exists in us, even as we're struggling to put off the old man. And so, God, we thank you, Lord, for the knowledge that your grace is not only to cover all of our sins, but also to keep us from sinning. And so, Father, if there is anything in us that is a betrayal of you, if there is anything that we have grown to prefer over you, if there is any sin, Lord, that has us in a death grip. Father, please, in your mercy, in your grace, make that plain to us as we read the Gospels, as we read our way through Matthew or Mark or Luke. God, would you open our eyes to the dangerous place that we are in, if that is true. So Father, we pray this. We pray you to open our eyes, help us to see Jesus clearly, and help us by degrees over time to become more and more like the God who saved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.